Today is Sunday, November 26, 2023. I'm Yulia, and I'll be briefing you on the war in Ukraine. The key topics in today's report are massive air assaults on Kyiv, getting cranky in Krynky, and global elections. You will also be hearing from Daniel Ridley, former Ukrainian Marine and Trident Defense Initiative founder, and a phenomenal Ukrainian activist, Yulia Tymoshenko. Not the former prime minister, just happens to share the same name. First, administrative updates. Happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners. While you were busy eating turkey, cranberry sauce, mashed potatoes, and gravy, we were busy rebranding. Borschen Lingen is now the people's media. It's media by the people, not corporations. We feel it better reflects our mission of delivering quality and unbiased news that are so rarely found in mass media. Our Substack and Patreon have been updated, and our new website is in the works. We've also spent the past week speaking with scholars at the Ukrainian Studies Institute at an obscure university in Cambridge, Massachusetts Oblast, called Harvard. You'll be hearing from them in upcoming episodes. We've also published a poll on Spotify on how you have heard of us. So we can expand our reach, please respond to it. It will help get the word out, which supports our reporting. Thanks for your understanding as we work to bring you the very best in the news and analysis. Now, updates from the contact line. For our purposes, the line of contact is the location where small arms, tanks, APCs, and mortars are in direct engagement with the enemy. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine releases a daily report at 6 a.m. each morning that includes a breakdown of Russian losses for the past 24 hours. The losses that were reported to have occurred on Friday, November 17th through Saturday, November 25th, included 6,180 personnel, 78 tanks, 103 armored personnel carriers, 119 artillery systems, 10 multiple launch rocket systems, 6 anti-aircraft systems, and 110 tactical operational drones. 448 combat engagements were also reported. We've noticed a decline in operational tempo on both the Russian and Ukrainian side, regardless of who holds the initiative in any single area along the front. We assess this is likely due, in part, to the weather. Bazdorizhia is back, baby! Bazdorizhia is the infamous Ukrainian mud that develops after heavy rain in the autumn or after rapid snowmelt and or heavy rain in the spring. For the past week, it's been raining on and off along the contact line. Today's weather forecast around Avdiivka? Rain. Kherson? Rain. Bakhmut? Rain. Occupied Kerim? Totally tempestuous. Actually, though, there is a hurricane-strength storm developing that will hit southern Ukraine on November 26th and 27th. The most intense fighting has been and remains around the city of Avdiivka and on the left bank of the Dnipro River. The city of Avdiivka remains in a salient with Russian forces to the north, south, and east. Ukrainian forces there are tired, but holding on. Russia continues to throw personnel into the grinder in, quote, zombie waves. Um, is Call of Duty a little too on the nose in their war scenarios featuring zombies? A combination of bad weather and resource reallocation to Avdiivka and Kherson have stimmied Russian offensive operations near Liman in Luhansk Oblast, Shakhtarsk near Staromayorsky and Urozhaina along the Zaporizhia and Donetsk Oblast border, and Orikhiv in Zaporizhia Oblast directions. More on that in a moment. Over 810 settlements were shelled both along and behind the line of contact in Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and Dnipropetrovsk oblasts. By comparing the general staff reports, we noticed that Russia stopped shelling settlements in Mykolaiv on November 21st, but started shelling settlements in Dnipropetrovsk oblast instead. The Hortice Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Kupinsk, Liman, and Bakhmut axes in the northeastern part of Ukraine. In Kupinsk, Ukraine repulsed 15 Russian attacks near Sankivka and Petropavlivka in Kharkiv oblast and Stelmachivka in Luhansk oblast. The Russians are trying to step up attacks around Kupinsk, fluctuating between 3 and 15 attacks over the past 10 days. All of the attacks were failures. Aw, so sad. On November 23rd, the AFU stabilized the line of contact in Ivanivka, liberating a half-square kilometer east of the settlement. Turning now to the Liman axis, 
The AFU re-liberated a small patch of the Srebrensky Nature Reserve on November 21st. Heavy fighting has been ongoing there for the past few months. The same day, we received clarification that Ukraine pushed Russian forces back to the east of Vrchnokamenka and Spirne. The Srebrensky Nature Reserve, Vrchnokamenka and Spirne are on the border of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, about halfway along the contact line from the north to south in the eastern part of Ukraine. Moving southward now to the Bakhmut axis. Over the past two weeks, the AFU has stopped and even reversed Russian gains to the north of Bakhmut, specifically to the west of Dubovo-Vasilivka and to the east of Bogdanivka. To the southeast of the city, the opposite is true. Russia made minor gains in the settlements of Klishchivka and Andriivka. Deep State clarified that Ukraine holds more ground near Kordumivka, which is a bit further south of Klishchivka and Andriivka. A small but significant update on this axis. Over the past 10 days, the no-man's land to the east of the city of Shumy in Donetsk Oblast has grown by a few square kilometers. Shumy, not to be confused with Sumy, is about 23 kilometers south of Bakhmut. This is significant, because this area has been held by Russia since 2014. Woohoo! Not to the being held by Russia since 2014. Woohoo to being liberated. The positional fighting on the Bakhmut axis shows both sides are exploiting any weakness in the enemy's defensive posture. The Tavria Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Avdiivka, Marienka, Shakhtarske and Zaporizhia axes in the central-eastern and southeastern part of Ukraine. This operational strategic group has been extremely busy. The assault on Avdiivka continues. Oleksandr Tarnavsky, commander of Tavria Group of Forces, said on November 23rd that Russia has begun the third wave of assault actions as part of its offensive on the Avdiivka front. This third wave is looking a bit, um, different this time. As in, they're not even bothering to use armored vehicles to send meat into the grinder. We don't know if it's because Russia has lost so much armor or whether they're trying to just flood the area with men and hope for a breakthrough. Maybe it's both. This is a somewhat problematic strategy because there is very little cover around Bakhmut. Dismounted infantry, preliminary made up of Storm Z and Storm V, are wandering into open fields. One Russian mill blogger complained that there is also not enough artillery fire to cover for them. Let's take a closer look to the north of Avdiivka, in Stepove and Krasnohorivka. Over the past 10 days, the Russians have made marginal gains here, losing some territory but gaining in others. Geolocated video emerged on Telegram on November 23rd, showing a Ukrainian M2A2 Bradley infantry fighting vehicle blasting Russian-held positions along a tree line in Stepove with its 25mm Bushmaster chain gun. Quick disclosure, we are... Unfortunately, might I add, not sponsored by Northrop Grumman, the fine American arms manufacturer, which now makes the Bushmaster. Not sponsored yet. You hear that, Northup? The video is significant in a couple of ways. First, it showed that at least one Ukrainian unit mastered deploying a smokescreen to protect the Bradley's firing position from anti-tank guided missiles. According to NATO doctrine, the Bradley is too far back from the tree line. But it didn't matter. It was still effective. The Bushmaster and its high-explosive incendiary ammunition wreaked havoc on the Russian position and pushed them back to the railway tracks. Second, it shows that the Western equipment is invaluable and Ukraine needs more of it. Another video emerged, supposedly of the same Bradley, after it had finally been hit. Unlike Soviet-era equipment, the crew is much more likely to have survived and the Bradley itself could be salvageable for repair. Third, and most importantly, if Ukraine was able to operate this way along the entire line of contact, the war would be moving much faster. Over the past 10 days, Russians gained about a half-square kilometer of the territory into Avdiivka itself along the intersection of the H-20 highway and Yasanovsky Lane, due east. Russians, meanwhile, continued to try to advance from Opitne and Vodyana into the southwest of the city, but failed. The situation in Avdiivka is approaching a critical point, though. The Ukrainian forces defending the city, especially the coke plant, are exhausted. The Russians continue to take unfathomable losses, for little in return. Both Russian mill bloggers and Ukrainian military analysts are concerned about the situation, although, as usual, the Russian side is more dramatic about it. We don't listen to Russian mill bloggers, but it is nice to see them flail. 
On November 24th and 25th, Russian mill blogger Romanov92 posted a video showing a column of Russian BMPs and APCs that were destroyed by Ukrainian cluster munitions. He posted another video showing a 1.3-kilometer road of death littered with what the U.S. military would call Tango U's, slang for, um, dead people. In a sign of exasperation in the Russian mill blogging community, he's also posted videos complaining that there aren't enough drones and gunpowder. A trainer of Storm Z units based in Avdiivka said that the Russian artillery can't provide much support for assaulting units, resulting in high losses. Aw, sad. Just to put a fine point on this before moving on. The Russians lost, on November 23rd alone, 706 personnel, 8 tanks, 13 armored vehicles, 8 artillery systems, 2 air defense systems, 15 UAVs, 5 vehicles, 2 ammunition depots, and a highly valuable R-149 command and control vehicle in Donetsk. The R-149 was obliterated by Ukrainian special operations forces using HIMARS. Yes, that is nearly 1,000 Russian soldiers taken out of the fight in one day, at one small part of the entire line of contact, in one city. And this has been going on, more or less, for 30 days. The ISW noted that large-scale infantry ground assaults are likely to pose a significant threat to Ukrainian forces defending the Avdiivka front, but will not lead to a rapid Russian advance in the region. We shall keep an eye on Avdiivka. Moving on to the Marinka axis, another area of heavy fighting along the contact line. The general staff reported repulsing anywhere between 10 and 22 attacks in Novomikhailivka, Krasnohorivka, the city in Donetsk Oblast, not the settlement north of Avdiivka, also in Donetsk Oblast, Pobeda, and Georgievka. Russia made confirmed advances just south of Novomikhailivka, capturing about one square kilometer of territory. On November 24th, Russian mill blogger Zapiski Veterana, or, in translation, Notes of a Veteran, claimed that the Russians are having widespread issues with electronic warfare systems along the contact line on the Kupiansk, Liman, Bakhmut, Avdiivka, and Marienka axes. The Hortice and Tavria operational strategic groups are inflicting, quote, otherwise preventable casualties on these axes using drone strikes. Aw, sad. Maybe they can ask Elon Musk to boot up Starling for them? Let's finish with the Shakhtarske and Zaporizhia axes. In Shakhtarske, the general staff said that Ukraine has defended against daily assaults around Staromayorske. On November 17th, Deep State confirmed that Russians gained about two square kilometers of territory to the south and west of Staromayorske. In the pockets south of Orihiv in Zaporizhia Oblast, Russians made confirmed advances of about one square kilometer west of Verbova, and Ukraine took back a half square kilometer to the west of Robotana. Positional fighting continues in both axes. The Odessa Operational Strategic Group is responsible for Kherson, Krym, also known as Crimea, and the Black Sea. The Russians are becoming cranky and krinke. The Ukrainian side continues to maintain fairly tight operational security, and the Russians aren't enjoying it. On November 22nd, Russians made some confirmed advances around Krynke, but so did the Ukrainians. It's not clear whether the Russians can hold on to their gains. They have a ragtag grouping of dopes on a rope, also known as the VDV Airborne Assault Units, remnants of the Black Sea Fleet, and whatever bodies they can scramble there. Positional fighting is taking place on the islands in the Dnipro. On November 23rd, the remnants of the 2nd Battalion of the Russian 26th Tank Regiment took a telegram with a plea for Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shaigu to give them a break. They claimed to have lost three companies of men, which could range between 30 and 150 men per company, and that they have been defending Krynke since July. We hope that works out for them, because taking to telegram and asking Shaigu for help always works out. Do they remember that Prigozhin tried that, but ended up dying in a fiery plane crash instead? Hmm. The UK Ministry of Defense, in its November 22nd intelligence update, stated that the fighting in Krynke on the left bank of the Dnipro represents a strategic setback for Russia, especially after their withdrawal from the Western Bank last year. The UK said it underscores the unexpected engagement intensity, even if it's on a smaller scale than elsewhere on the contact line. The persistent combat reflects a significant deviation from Russia's intended military posture, 
aimed at consolidating forces and maintaining tranquility in the sector. Our analysis here. The ground fighting has been characterized by confused, dismounted infantry combat and artillery exchanges in complex, wooded terrain. Ukraine has made particularly effective use of small attack drones. The Russian Air Force is conducting significant numbers of sorties to support frontline troops, predominantly by launching munitions from beyond the range of Ukraine's air defenses. Because why worry about things like accuracy when you can just lob a glide bomb and blindly fire a missile? Mission accomplished, am I right? The fighting around Krynky is on a smaller scale than some major battles of the war. However, this operational direction may end up being much more strategically significant than the size of the forces there. Russian leaders may look back, if they're still alive, and grimace. Last year, around this time, Russia withdrew from the west bank of the Dnipro almost certainly to hold Ukrainian forces in place. The river was meant to act as a physical barrier to keep the sector quiet and free up Russian forces elsewhere. They do know that water can, like, freeze, right? Ukraine, if it plays its cards right and continues to receive military aid from the West, now has the opportunity to transform these tactical successes into strategic gains by cutting off occupied Krym from the land bridge. Speaking of occupied Krym, it's been a little too quiet there for our taste. Something's up. Maybe some drones? A legitimate occupation governor of Kherson, Vladimir Salda, posted a message on Telegram on November 24th saying that Ukraine launched one of the largest air attempts on Krym and Kherson with, quote, dozens of drones and, quote, air defense and electronic warfare systems shot down and intercepted them all, end quote. Oddly, oleaginous piggy and advisor to the illegal occupation governor of Krym, Oleg Krychkov, has been silent. An unverified video of a huge fire, purportedly on a military base in Jankoy, was also posted on the Crimean Wind Telegram channel with audio claiming three people were injured. Based on the video, it looks like a lot more than three people were injured. Now, the temporarily occupied territories. The SBU, or Security Service of Ukraine, aired a documentary on November 24th that made some pretty big claims. Big if true, so to speak. Vasil Maluk, head of the SBU, said that the second of two major drone attacks in August had seriously disrupted operations on the 19-kilometer, or 12-mile, Kerch Bridge. Maluk claimed that six of eight support structures were destroyed and that the remaining two were damaged. As a result, Russia was forced to use ferries to supply their troops with weapons. Quote, We have destroyed the myth of Russian invincibility. The country is a fake. The bridge is doomed. Plenty of surprises lie ahead, and not just the Crimean Bridge. End quote. We've noted that the bridge has been closed several times a week for maintenance, and that Russia continues to deploy booms, sink ships, and deploy smokescreens in an effort to counter the attack by sea babies. Aww. Cute. The uncrewed surface vessels that have plagued the Russian presence on the Krim Peninsula. The documentary was the first in a series of episodes that shows off the SBU's accomplishments both inside and outside Ukrainian territory. Maluk also revealed that the Sea Babies don't use the Starlink communication system owned by anti-Semite and authoritarian fanboy Elon Musk. Musk thwarted a Ukrainian attack on Russia's Black Sea Fleet in October 2022 by shutting off access to the satellite communications network. Thanks in part to the drones and long-range missile attacks on Black Sea Fleet assets in occupied Krym, Russia has significantly reduced their capability in Sevastopol, or its lesser-known yet real name, Akiar, in Krym Tatarlar. Can't reload caliber cruise missiles due to logistical problems and threat of long-range missile attacks, and can't effectively blockade Ukrainian waters. Much of the fleet has been moved to the safety of Novorossiysk and Abkhazia, occupied Sakartvelo, also known as Georgia. The UK Defense Intelligence Report on November 25th explained that by being forced to use Novorossiysk, the Black Sea Fleet's ability to reload vessels with cruise missiles is hampered. Back on November 13th, the Ukrainian military said that Russia stopped launching naval missiles at Ukraine because of unspecified logistical problems in the new port. Relocating and reloading missiles away from Sevastopol, Akiar, requires new delivery, storage, handling, and loading processes. 
Russia can't risk loading the missiles in Akyar due to the threat of Skelp EG, Atakams, or Storm Shadow long-range missiles. The UK MOD added that Russia is likely going to try and overcome these logistical challenges before winter. Good luck! Spokesperson for the naval forces of Ukraine, Dmitro Platonchuk, also hinted that at least one or several top Black Sea officers had a hand in orchestrating the attack on their headquarters in Akyar in September. Ukraine attacked the building with long-range missiles during a meeting of top officials, resulting in many casualties. Platonchuk said if Ukraine revealed the number of dead officers, it could tip off Russia as to who gave information to the AFU. He added, quote, It's very important to save the lives of the people who work for us there. End quote. He was simply coy about whether the BSF commander Viktor Sokolov is alive, injured, or dead, saying, quote, Not everything is as good as Russia would like, because this person hasn't been seen in the media space. There were several attempts by propagandists to show him alive, but analysts immediately determined that they were showing an old recording. Sokolov allegedly attended a meeting with Putin for the third time in Crimea at some kind of prayer service. We'll see. End quote. We don't know whether Platonchuk is deliberately spreading rumors about Sokolov, genuinely doesn't know what his status is, or if Sokolov is the informant. But honestly, we'll take any of the above. Next, the home front. On November 25th, Ukraine lit candles to remember the at least 4 million Ukrainians who died during the genocide now known as the Holodomor. Holodomor means death by starvation, and these numbers are very conservative. The figure of 4 million usually only includes death specifically by starvation. It does not include deaths from underlying diseases, deaths by suicide or by murder for looking for food, unborn children, and others. Often, deaths from hunger were also recorded as anything but that. For instance, they could be recorded as liver failure. Russia, through the Soviet Union, created an artificial famine from 1932 to 1933 by requisitioning grain, forcing inefficient collective farming, shooting people who searched for food, imposing restrictions on movement, and enforcing unreasonably high grain quotas. There were three Holodomors, one from 1921 to 1922, another one from 1932 to 1933, the biggest and most well-known one, and yet another from 1945 to 1948. That is actually the Holodomor that my grandfather escaped from. Him and his mother used to live in Donetsk, in front of a prison that housed Nazis that were caught by the Soviet Union, and they had relatives in Dnipro. So somewhere in between 1945 and 1948, they relocated there, only to find that the situation was not much better. According to my grandfather, for a month worth of salary, you could buy three loaves of bread. And I mean, just that, nothing else. They were fortunate enough to be able to escape to Lviv, where he says he saw fruit for the first time. Ukrainians were forced to eat acorns, leather, grass, mud, and clay. Although it's still stigmatized, many were forced to resort to cannibalism or eating their own body parts just to survive. The best person to give you a little more insight on what was happening in Ukraine during Holodomor is my friend and a brilliant activist, Yulia Tymoshenko. So I'll pass it on to her. My name is Julia Tymoshenko. I'm 24 years old and I come from a small village of Zavorichi that's located east of Kiev. My entire family is native to this region between Kiev and Chernihiv. And I grew up learning uh, the stories of how my family survived the Holodomor and I think... Those stories particularly um, have shaped me as a person and made me realize that the Russian oppression of Ukraine dates back not even 10 years ago when the Russians invaded Ukraine, but centuries ago. And my uh, ancestors have gone through the worst kind of things uh, because of the Russian regime. My uh, maternal great-grandfather was one of the two children who survived um, the Holodomor in the family of 10 children. 
And on my dad's side, my great-grandma was walking 50 kilometers to Kyiv just to buy bread there, um, sell some clothes, sell some embroideries that she was making um, to make sure that she can get something and to bring back to her kids to feed the cities were flooded actually by peasants who were begging for food, dying there on the streets. The cases of uh, mafia cannibalism were insane. She was in fact uh, almost put under a knife uh, and was almost chopped into meat. Uh, but um, the man told her that she's too thin and he's just going to let her go otherwise there's a very big chance that she could have, have been sold on um, a market pretending like it was animal's meat, but a lot of that was human meat. It is a very, very horrific story, and just thinking about that is giving me chills and making me realize like, the scale of the trauma and the horrors that uh, Russia has inflicted on us. And the most difficult thing to realize is that it's still going on and repeating um, today. Holodomor Remembrance Day is observed on the fourth Saturday of every November to honor the victims of the genocide. 30 countries and 34 U.S. states now recognize the policy of forced starvation as a genocide. On the night of November 25th, Russia sent a record 75 Shahed 136-131 kamikaze drones to Kyiv to overwhelm air defense systems and destroy electrical infrastructure. Ukraine's air defense forces managed to destroy 74 out of 75 of them. Soon after, Russia launched an unknown ballistic missile. As of this writing, seven groups of Shaheds are now in the air heading towards Kyiv. Twenty waves of drones were sent to the capital on the night of the 25th to swarm and swamp the regional air defenses. The drones were coated in black, carbon-based paint that absorbs radiation that could be picked up by radar. The paint, in theory, also makes the drones harder to detect visually at night. The radiation-absorbing paint worked about as well as the Su-57's Felon's stealth coating, which seems to be affixed by wooden screws. Power was knocked out in several areas, but was quickly restored by utility workers. Several civilians were hurt, including an 11-year-old girl who suffered an acute stress reaction. A downed Shahed exploded on top of a kindergarten, lighting it on fire. The capital Solomyansky district was impacted by several fires. Swarm attacks are designed to overwhelm air defenses, or to give ballistic or cruise missiles a greater chance of hitting their target. This wasn't the case on November 25th, but Russia may have been attempting to test the limits of Kyiv's air defense systems. By sending these swarms on or around Holodomor Remembrance Day, Russia is sending the same message it sent for the past 300 years. We will eradicate you. One way or another. You may have heard about very large numbers of amputations among Ukrainian military on the battlefield. Now, these are undoubtedly the result of Russia's mining practices. The territory of Ukraine is now the most mined in the world. However, that is not the only reason for amputation rates as high as World War I. Another one is the poor training of combat medics. Well, let me backtrack here. It's not necessarily poor training. It's training not adjusted for the type of war that Ukraine's battlefield is seeing. Standardized practices only work for the conditions for which they were created. Ukraine is very different to your standard NATO warfare. And on that, we'll hear from Daniel Ridley, a former Ukrainian Marine and the founder of Trident Defense Initiative an organization that has trained upwards of 11,000 soldiers in Ukraine, in many tactical skills, battlefield medicine included. Uh, my name is Daniel Ridley. I'm the founder of Trident Defense Initiative. We are a training center for the Ukrainian Armed Forces in Ukraine. Uh, we've trained just over 11,000 Ukrainian soldiers, completely free of charge, in a wide array of specialities and skills. Medical, drones, mm -hmm. infantry training, uh, lots of different things. Uh, I also served myself for years in the Ukrainian Marines from 2019 to 2022. And then since the pretty much the beginning of the full-scale invasion, I've been assisting in the training of Ukrainian soldiers. Two of the courses, one of our main courses that we offer is the three-week uh, platoon medics course. It goes quite uh, in-depth into a lot of different skills, including a cadaver lab, mm -hmm. intravenous access, intraosseous access, etc., etc. And also a one-week uh, combat lifesaver style course. 
which covers sort of bringing up uh, one person per squad who's a more medically proficient uh, than the rest of the squad. I wanted to speak a little bit about today uh, is tourniquets. So tourniquets have always been a sort of flashpoint of this war. Uh, a lot of fakes um, and different variations of tourniquet have sort of flooded in. Really is uh, one primary, you know, good one that works. That doesn't need revision or change, and that's the the cat tourniquet, the combat application tourniquet. But I won't cover stuff like that. That's you know, it's not really uh, my ball game, and it's been covered enough. But one thing that's becoming uh, becoming a bit of a, a controversy again is the unnecessary mm-hmm. usage of tourniquets. Uh, people are even going as far to say as uh, tourniquets are unnecessary and things like that uh, because you can lose limbs from them. The whole way that the medical procedure works for uh, tactical or combat medicine is with, with the March algorithm. Uh, and basically that's structured in a way of, you know, stopping what can kill you the fastest in the order of what can kill you the fastest. So, you know, uh, massive bleeding, uh, into airway obstruction, uh, things like that. So it goes further down the, the tree. Yeah, obviously you can lose a limb if a tonic is applied for too long. Uh, but obviously losing a limb is better than death in most regards. And uh, it will, will stop the bleeding if applied correctly. Uh, some of the issues that we're seeing, though, is that tourniquets are being applied to limbs that don't necessarily need them, and that's becoming more and more of an issue. It's something that the problem is there's a huge disconnect between the war in Ukraine and then the war that the the people that wrote the these standards and, and, and built this uh, package of tactical medicine and the standard of it, such as the March algorithm and things, they were drawing off experience, you know, legacy experience from the Vietnam War, and then uh, mostly experience from Iraq and Afghanistan. Very different, very, very different in a million different ways uh, to Ukraine. But one of the biggest ones is evacuation times. Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq also, but I think it was pioneered in Afghanistan. We had a uh, we had a system called the Golden Hour, uh, and effectively that meant if you could be within a hospital within an hour from the point of injury, uh, an hour or less, uh, you had a, a much, much higher chance of surviving. That was very easily achievable when you had helicopters and medevac teams and, uh, you know, fully functional, open, you know, hospitals per se. Uh, it's just not possible in Ukraine. There's many different reasons for that. One is, you know, if you're looking from point of injury, let's say positions, the trench, the front line, uh, you can't just drive a vehicle there and pick someone up uh, because of the, you know, ATGM threat, the anti-tank guided missile threat, uh, the drone threat, the FPV drone threat, things like that. So it's not as easy uh, as just driving a car, picking someone up. Uh, again, helicopter evacuations are pretty much out of the question unless it's from hospital to hospital uh, within the interior of Ukraine, away from the front lines. Um, again, due to the, the anti-air threat and also the uh, threat of also enemy aviation in the area. So the golden hour sort of gets chucked out the window here, uh, which complicates things like tourniquets a lot. Uh, the the general practice is, you know, get to a casualty, identify bleeding, tourniquet high and tight. Uh, which is fantastic, but what's what we're seeing a lot of is people are coming in and just seeing blood and tourniqueting everywhere where they see blood. You, you've, you've got a, a massive bleed in the leg, for instance, or it might not even be a massive bleed. It might be a, a venereal bleed, which you know produces a lot of blood but isn't as life-threatening as an, ar- as an arterial bleed. The issue with that is, so I, I was in the morgue a few weeks ago, saw a Ukrainian soldier that was in there that had passed away, and he had a groin injury. Uh, very close to his genitals and caused a lot of bleeding is one of the reasons he died uh, but he had two tourniquets uh, three tourniquets applied to his legs the tourniquets on the legs were not stopping the bleeding from the groin area uh, so they were pretty much useless um, and you know if he had survived he probably would have lost both his legs just for the fact that the tourniquets were on for a very long time also two i think two of the tourniquets were fake but again that's another issue yeah so so the problem with it is 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 judging by the uh Judging by the practices, people are coming in, high and tight tourniquet, getting them out. The issue in Ukraine is that the, the golden hour is thrown out the window and the evacuation times are massively lengthened, uh, sometimes going up to 12 to 24 hours uh, in some cases if it's just impossible to, to get an evacuation from that position or from that point of injury. And then also the transit back from the evacuations uh, and then the, the incredible amount of stress uh, that the hospitals and the aid stations are under. Uh, so yeah, we're just seeing a seeing a big issue with this uh, constantly, um, and I think it's something that needs to be identified. Is and something I said recently is you have time, you know, take the time, get to the casualty, get there safely, get there once the firefighters ended, identify the injuries. All soldiers should be carrying, you know, trauma trauma shears, uh, so like heavy duty scissors. You know, get the clothes open, 
identify where the bleeding's coming from. You know, people are seeing blood on, on pants and then putting tourniquets on two legs. Uh, it's just not necessary. So taking a little bit more time, not getting tunnel vision, not getting sucked in with the adrenaline. The bleeding needs to be stopped as quick as possible. But we need to think about what happens next as well. Uh, and that can be achieved with further training, uh, further protocols, um, updating uh, things like the March algorithm, which is an American system, but it's become standard in Ukraine. Updating things like that to apply more unilaterally to, to all conflicts, uh, not per se just you know a NATO standard conflict or a conflict that isn't a full scale total war situation like Ukraine has. Okay, we may not be able to evacuate for X amount of time. Different levels of treatments that apply for rapid evacuation and then not so rapid evacuation. So yeah, that's uh, take your time. Doesn't mean go mega slow and someone bleeds out. But take the time to expose the injuries, take the time to identify the bleeding and take the time to identify the form of treatment that is needed for that casualty specifically. Next... Let's talk about Russia and effectively occupied Belarus. In an incident that did not get much press coverage, FSB-linked telegram channel Baza reported last month that 32-year-old Yegor Semenov, a native of occupied Melitopol, tried to permanently demobilize dozens of Russian pilots at the 20th reunion of the elite Armavir Higher Military Aviation School in Krasnodar Krai. Semenov, who moved to Russia in 2017 with his family, allegedly delivered an elaborate cake weighing 20 kilograms with Jameson Irish whiskey, courtesy of an anonymous benefactor. The cake, which bore the Academy's insignia, was laced with an unknown toxic substance. Over 75 people, many of them high-ranking pilots, were at the party. Honestly, if they were in HIMARS range, this would be a super-legit military target. Semyonov had a one-way ticket out of Stavropol airport, but was apprehended before he boarded the plane. Baza blamed the HUR, or Ukraine's military intelligence service. Better luck next time! In a win for the HUR, Ukraine was able to assassinate a collaborator in the Russian border district of Belgorod. Alexander Slisarenko was killed on November 16th when his car exploded. Aw, sad! Slisarenko was an active participant in the anti-Maidan movement in Kharkiv and fought for the so-called Luhansk People's Republic as part of the RIS Special Forces Unit from 2021 to 2022. He became the deputy head for the internal affairs of the Russian Occupation Administration in Kharkiv Oblast last summer, was suspected of high treason, and participated in crimes against humanity. This makes my heart melt. Like this deal on his car. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Speaking of melting, a power substation in Moscow's Lublino district caught fire late on November 23rd. This was the second substation to catch fire in as many days. The Russian Ministry of Emergency Management said of the fire, quote, Firefighters have extinguished a fire in Moscow. A transformer in the southeastern administrative district caught fire. The fire was quickly extinguished by 70 firefighters and 20 pieces of apparatus, end quote. Our resident retired firefighter and research associate John Stamp has some questions about this. It doesn't take 70 firefighters and 20 pieces of apparatus to put out a small substation fire. This fire was much more severe than Russian media outlets are reporting. And we're not mad about it. Russian Transport Minister Vitaly Savelyev revealed that Russia has lost 76 passenger planes due to sanctions imposed on the aviation industry. After Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the US and EU slapped severe export restrictions on spare aviation parts and ordered leasing companies to recover planes leased to Russian airlines. According to Bloomberg, leased aircraft accounted for up to 40% of their fleet. Even worse for Russia, foreign aircraft owned by Russian airlines have been ordered seized. Savelyev said, quote, Their decision to seize our aircraft took us by surprise. We lost a total of 76 passenger vessels. End quote. You know, have they tried using any of those parts from stolen Ukrainian washing machines? Might want to give it a whirl. The UK MOD said in its November 23rd intelligence update that they see signs that Russia has begun to, quote, rehabilitate, end quote, the fighters of the Wagner private military company. The intelligence update cited a separate group of, quote, veterans of Wagner PMC received their official veteran certificates on November 14th, for whatever that's worth. This is the first time that the mercenaries from Wagner have been officially recognized as veterans. Sergei Mironov, chairperson of the A Just Russia political party, 
Um, not off to a great start here. Adopted a 10-month-old girl kidnapped from the occupied Kherson Oblast and changed her name. At the end of August 2022, Mironov's fifth wife, Inna Varlamova, and his deputy, Yana Lantratova, arrived in the occupied Kherson Oblast. The women left with the 10-month-old Margarita Prokopenko and 2-year-old Ilya Vashchenkov from the Kherson Children's Home. Documents made available to the media read that in December 2022, Mironov and Varlamova adopted Margarita and changed her data. Now, the girl's name is Marina Sergeyevna Mironova. The ISW assessed that the Russian political leaders are encouraged by the regime to lead by example and kidnap Ukrainian children. Next, news worldwide. Polish truck drivers, for our listeners across the pond, lorry drivers. The reason we're specifying this is because a couple of months ago, we found ourselves in a very interesting discussion with an Irishman, talking about jeeps. To our American ears, we thought he was talking about Jeep, the car brand. No, no. He was talking about Jeeps, as in SUVs. Because an SUV is a Jeep, a truck is a Jeep, and then a large 16-wheeler is a lorry. So, lorry drivers, organizing a blockade of Ukrainian carriers at the Polish-Ukrainian border, have close ties to the Russian Federation, according to media outlet Gilt Hall. The official organizer of the protest at the Ukrainian-Polish border crossing is one Rafal Mackler, who owns an eponymous transport company. Mackler also happens to head the far-right party Confederation of Freedom and Independence Chamber in Lublin, which espouses anti-Ukrainian policy positions and espouses close ties to Russia. Surprise! National Party leader Janusz Korwin-Mikke has called for the recognition of the Russian occupation of occupied Krym. In 2015, Mikke visited the annexed peninsula, where he met with the Russian occupation head Sergei Aksyonov. According to Guildhall, the Confederation Party is also affiliated with another Polish right-wing organization called All Polish Youth. Oh, sounds like something. Guildhall described the All Polish Youth movement as having, quote, long-standing ties to the Russian imperial movement, end quote. The APY recruited fighters for Russia's proxy forces in the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. As of this writing, two Ukrainian truck drivers have allegedly died waiting in line to cross the border. Poland. Please do something. We love you, but please get your act together. The Netherlands went wild on Tuesday, handing the far-right populist Gerd Wilders and his party for freedom a plurality in parliament with nearly a third of the vote, far exceeding expectations. Wilders, who's been in the opposition for... ever? Ran again? On an anti-EU, anti-Muslim platform and will be handed the first opportunity to form a coalition government. There is a snag for Wilders, though. The last coalition government, led by Mark Rutte, took 298 days to form, and Wilders will have an even tougher road. And although we love a good coalition government, there is no obvious path for Wilders to become prime minister. The current pro-EU, pro-Ukrainian government will remain in power until a new coalition is formed, or until a new election is called. Wilders is an ally of prick of a prestidigitator and principal provincial peasant of Hungary, Viktor Orban. Bloomberg broke a story on November 25th claiming that unnamed, quote, major EU governments are trying to soften sanctions to protect their economies. Our guess, based on which countries describe themselves as major, would be Germany, France, and Austria. The Baltic states are completely opposed to softening the next sanctions package, which takes aim at third-party sanctions evasion. The European Commission is proposing a prohibition of the resale of semiconductors used by Russia in weapons manufacturing. The proposal will require sellers to pay a security deposit that can be seized if sanctions violations are found. Seized deposits will be held in trust for Ukraine. We really, really like this proposal. If you are listening in one of those major countries, could you kindly tell your government that you won't have to worry about an economy if Russia wins in Ukraine? The imam of flying mopeds, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei of Iran, is reportedly considering sending missiles to Russia, according to the Wall Street Journal. Iran has already provided Russia with armed drones, guided aerial bombs, and artillery shells. Iran officials have said that Tehran plans to buy Su-35 fighters from Russia, but those planes have yet to be delivered. As if Russia had any they could actually part with. Iran also wants to buy other military hardware, including radars and attack helicopters. 
again, as if Russia had any they could part with. But U.S. is concerned that the military cooperation between the terrorist states further deepened when Iran showed its Ababil and Fateh 110 missiles to Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shaigu when he visited Tehran in September. An unnamed spokesperson for the National Security Council said, quote, We are therefore concerned that Iran is considering providing Russia with ballistic missiles for use in Ukraine, end quote. Iran has been an increasingly important Russian arms supplier and has benefited from the relationship. Russia, in turn, has been helping Iran improve its satellite collection capabilities and is offering to help Tehran on missiles, air defense, and military electronics. ISW says it's observed Russian forces increasingly using glide bombs, particularly modified FAB-500, KAB-500, and RPK-500 aerial bombs equipped with glide bomb structures in the Liman and Kherson directions in Ukraine. Kirby's statement did not specify whether Iran's support of Russia includes the supply of component parts of fully assembled glide bombs. However, the ISW's Critical Threats Project noted Iran's increased domestic production of various glide bombs, including Gaim, Yasin, Sadid, and Balaban models. Some assessment here. A while ago, we discussed an OSINT report with some of our own analysis regarding the relative unreliability of Russia's domestically produced glide bombs. This deal with Iran is most likely an attempt by Russia to overcome both manufacturing shortfalls at home and to avoid the high rate of malfunctioning from their own glide bombs. Unfortunately, many of us saw this coming. Russia's lack of manufacturing capability, combined with Russia's expanding its stockpiles, made them increasingly desperate for arms. Iran isn't the only terrorist state benefiting from Russian satellite technology. North Korea, for the third time, claimed to launch a spy satellite that was taking images of U.S. bases in Guam. The Republic of Korea, also known as South Korea, released intelligence in September that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, also known as North Korea, received assistance from Russia to successfully launch the satellite. North Korea is sending Russia millions of rounds of 152mm ammunition. Finally, military and tech. During a Q&A session with members of the European Parliament in Brussels on November 21st, European Commissioner for the Internal Market Thierry Breton shared insights on the EU's pledge to supply Ukraine with 1 million rounds of ammunition by March 2024. Breton based his assessment on his visits to military-industrial firms across 15 EU member states. Breton stated that by spring 2024, EU defense companies are expected to achieve a production capacity of 1 million artillery shells per year allocated to Ukraine. He further projected that by the end of 2025, the production rate could increase to between 1.3 and 1.4 million shells per year. By March, the EU will be able to produce 1 million artillery shells a year, but 40% of production is contracted to be exported outside Europe. There is a lot of Bavovna not going to Ukraine. On Wednesday, the Swiss government gave final approval to export 25 Leopard 2 main battle tanks back to Germany, reselling them to the original manufacturer, Rheinmetall. It's the culmination of a deal that had been in the making for most of the year. As European countries tried to persuade neutral Switzerland to return some of its excess tanks kept in storage, so they could fill ranks thinned out by other European and NATO countries that have sent their tanks to Ukraine. Switzerland's Bundesrat finally relented, stating, quote, This delivery of tanks abroad satisfies the approval criteria and the war material law. Particularly meaningful is the fact that Germany has assured that the sold tanks will remain in Germany or NATO or EU partners to fill their own gaps, end quote. After much handwriting, NATO leaders were able to convince Switzerland that resupplying countries that aren't party to the war in Ukraine, even if that, in turn, enabled those countries to consider further deliveries to Kyiv, would not violate the country's weapons export regulations. And all of this for 25 tanks which we're grateful for. Just wanted to remind the Swiss that Ukraine has destroyed nearly 200 armored vehicles in Avdiivka since October 10th alone. Bitte schön! Oleksandr Kirilenko, deputy chief of the general staff of the AFU, announced that as of November 21st, more than 100,000 soldiers from the AFU have completed training programs and training centers in over 30 partner states. This is a lot of lead slingers among friends. The Ukrainian MOD also announced that it has accelerated the supply of new weapons to the army. 
The acceleration was made possible by regulatory changes introduced by Ukrainian Defense Minister Rustem Umirov earlier in the month. These changes reduced the time to supply new samples of weapons and military equipment down to 20 days, depending on quality and completeness of the equipment provided by the manufacturer. Prior to these changes, manufacturers had to overcome six approval stages, which could take months. This is a bit wonky, but it's big news. It will help frontline units get much better equipment, much faster. A video published on Telegram channel Infactum shows that multi-rotor, quote, drone carriers are currently being tested on the battlefield in Ukraine. The idea of attaching a drone to another drone is by no means something new, but actually can help to make the available weapons strike farther. For example, the label on a typical first-person view drone can destroy targets within 10 kilometers from the starting point. The multi-rotor carrier is capable of delivering the FPV drone to a launch point 5 kilometers from the operator, and an additional 5-kilometer FPV can travel on its own, resulting in a total range of 15 kilometers. The multi-copter may also function as a relay for the signal from the controller. So not only does the drone get a piggyback ride, but so does its signal. Neat! Mikhail Fedorov, Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation, unveiled plans to establish an army of robots and army of electronic warfare to bolster military capabilities with a focus on transparency and collaboration. He did not provide any more details at this time, but taking into account the Ukrainian Ministry of Digital Transformation's active project having a similar name, quote, Army of Drones, end quote, one can assume that the ministry is going to raise funds on the platform United24 in order to purchase robotic platforms and electronic warfare equipment for the Ukrainian military. Ukraine has a large number of domestic experimental robotic systems and electronic warfare equipment. However, the state often lacks funds and resources to scale up the production. Fedorov also noted that the Digitization Ministry and the Ministry of Defense will jointly set up a group for the construction of fortifications which will work 24-7 as in, quote, operational headquarters, end quote, and coordinate the efforts of all authorities and the military in the construction of defense structures. Some assessment here. While some countries have had first-person combat drones for some time, Ukraine has been leading the world in innovation of use and implementation of all sorts of drones on the battlefield especially in the small unit, company-sized element or smaller, tactical level. That concludes our brief today. We'll convene again soon. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And if you haven't already, don't just consider, but subscribe to our work on Substack and Patreon. It helps us a lot. You will get ad-free briefs, exclusive materials, and interviews before they air on the pod. Мирного неба!